The Gospel lesson for this Trinity Sunday comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. And in this Gospel lesson, Jesus reveals his true identity to the great scandal of his opponents. Please stand again as you are able for the Gospel. Uh, you can find this on page 758 of the Pew Bible. From John 8, beginning at verse 48, we read in Jesus' name. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one God, and there are three persons who are God. But they are not three gods, they are one God. They are equal in power and glory and majesty and knowledge and every other divine attribute. And this is the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is the first great mystery of the Christian faith. And by mystery, I do not mean secret. God has revealed this to us in the Holy Scriptures so that we might confess it, believe it, and worship him. But it still remains a mystery. We do not understand it. We can know it and we can confess it even though we do not fully comprehend it. It remains mysterious. Throughout church history, when the doctrine of the Trinity has come under attack, it has most often been a denial that the Son is equal to the Father. For whatever reason, the heretics have, for the most part, kind of left the Holy Spirit out of the fight and focused their attention on bringing the Son down enough. And so the passages that Orthodox Christians often use to defend the doctrine of the Trinity are those passages that prove that the Son is equal to the Father. If we can prove from Scripture that Jesus is equal to the Father, then nobody really questions whether or not the Holy Spirit is also equal. Since Holy Scripture speaks of all three of them as divine beings, then they are equal. They each possess the nature of God. There is a sort of a hierarchy within the Trinity, and we 
confessed this during the Athanasian Creed about how the Son is begotten of the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so the Father sends the Son and the Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit. But yet they are equal in power and glory and majesty and knowledge and every other attribute of God. Now this is one of the passages that proves that Jesus is equal to the Father. And Jesus gets into this back and forth argument with uh, some Jews about their fathers. Actually, most of chapter 8 is an argument about this. They argue about who Jesus' father is. They argue about who his opponent's father is. And they argue about whose father is the greatest. In a way, it kind of reminds me of those elementary school arguments that boys have regarding whose dad is the greatest. And I assume these arguments happen everywhere. You know, one boy says, my dad can lift a hundred pounds. And another boy says, my dad is stronger than your dad. He can lift a thousand pounds. And another boy says, oh yeah, well, my dad can lift 10,000 pounds. I assume those arguments happen everywhere. In my elementary school, which was in Leeds, North Dakota, Little Leeds, we argued about whose dad had the best truck. Because in small town North Dakota, you know whoever has the best truck is the best. <laughs> now, a lot, of my dad, a lot of my friends' dads were farmers, and so they had rather large pickups. But I insisted that my dad's little 87 S10 Blazer was better than anybody's dad's Ford. My opponents took issue with me even calling it a truck. Well, after several years of pleading, that vehicle finally became mine, and I learned that I was, in fact, wrong. When pulling a small trailer, that truck could do 0 to 60 with a tail. My dad may have been better than all of their dads, but his truck was not. But yet, that's the kind of thing that we argued about. We argued about fathers and their trucks. Now, Jesus, of course, is more mature than that. But his opponents, not really. Most of John 8 is an argument about fathers. Jesus speaks of his father, and he speaks of his father in exclusive terms. He does not share his father with his opponents, or really at this point, anybody. So Jesus does not call him our father, but instead he only calls him my father. Jesus is claiming that God is his father, and that therefore he is the son of God. And he means this in exclusive terms. It's different than when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to our father, or where the Bible calls Christians children of God. Jesus is being more exclusive here. He is the only Son of God. No one else is a child of God in the exact same way as Jesus. Jesus is the only Son of God in the sense that he shares the same divine nature as God. That's the Father Jesus is talking about. The Jews, on the other hand, and I don't mean all of the Jews, but only the ones who opposed Jesus, these Jews disputed Jesus' claim. And that's what they mean when they call Jesus a Samaritan. The Samaritans, they were people of a mixed genealogy. They were, on one side, descended from Abraham, but somewhere along the line, their ancestors intermarried with foreigners, and so they were not full-blooded Israelites. Now, Jesus was not really a Samaritan. 
He was a Jew from the region of Galilee. But these Jews, they try to insult Jesus by calling him a Samaritan. They notice that Jesus is claiming to have a different father than they do. And so they basically say, fine, your father is some random Assyrian peasant. That's what it meant to be a Samaritan. If Jesus claims to have a different father, then he must not really be a Jew, or so they think. These Jews, on the other hand, when they spoke of their father, they spoke of him collectively. They speak of their father. In one place, they assert that God is their father, though they certainly don't mean the same thing that Jesus means when he claims that. And in other places, they claim that Abraham is their father. They mean by this that they are physical descendants of Abraham. And so they claim to be children of God in a spiritual sense because they are in a physical sense children of Abraham. They think that the physical leads to the spiritual reality. And Jesus admits, of course, that physically they are descendants of Abraham. That's true. But that does not make them children of God. Since they do not believe Jesus, Jesus says that they are actually children of the devil. Now that's kind of a harsh burn. This is back in verse 44, just a few verses before our reading for today. Jesus says to them, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. And so that's the argument that's been building in John chapter 8. And then in our text for today, at the end of the chapter, this my dad is better than your dad argument finally comes to a head. The Jews say to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And the way Jesus answers this is kind of interesting. He simply says, I do not have a demon. But he doesn't actually dispute the Samaritan. Now remember, Jesus is not actually a Samaritan, but he didn't bother to dispute the accusation. And by ignoring that insult, he actually shows his acceptance of the Samaritans. The Jews despised Samaritans because of their mixed heritage, but Jesus accepted them. And so he's not really bothered to be called a Samaritan because there's nothing wrong with being a Samaritan. It shouldn't be an insult, so Jesus just ignores it. Instead, he goes on, I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. By this, Jesus means that the one who seeks the glory of Jesus is his father. Jesus doesn't have to worry about glorifying himself. He doesn't have to stand up for himself. He doesn't need to boast in order to pad his own ego. When Jesus does boast, and he kind of does sometimes, he does it because people need to know this stuff in order to be saved. He insists. He wants people to know that he is the Son of God because that knowledge is necessary for salvation. People need to know it. He boasts, really, for the sake of other people, not for his own sake. And he leaves his glory in his Father's hands. At the appropriate time, the Father will glorify the Son. We'll get back to that in a moment. But Jesus makes this promise then. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. To the Jews who hated Jesus, this seemed like an arrogant boast because they did not believe his words. But to those who believe and treasure Jesus' words, this is a marvelous promise. You will never see 
death. But those Jews who hated Jesus, they took this as verification that Jesus had a demon. They thought this was absolutely crazy. Even Abraham, their father and the recipient of God's promises, died. The prophets died too. Everybody dies. If Jesus claims to have power over death, then he must be greater than Abraham and greater than all the prophets? This is kind of crazy, right? This is like a fourth grade boy saying, oh yeah, well my truck is better than your dad's truck. (laughs) Okay, you're in fourth grade. How do you have a truck? The Jews are starting to understand what Jesus is really claiming. If he claims to have power over death, that must mean that he's claiming to be, you know, that guy. The one who is greater than Abraham and greater than the prophets. They're beginning to understand that Jesus is claiming to be God. And so they say, who do you make yourself out to be? Now, there's an interesting dynamic going on here that drives these Jews to eventually murder Jesus. And Jesus is, in kind of a subtle way, inviting them to kill him. This promise, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, kind of plants an idea in their minds. And the idea goes like this. We want to discredit Jesus. How can we prove that Jesus is just plain crazy or that he has a demon? Well, it's this. He claims to have power over death. How do we prove that wrong? By killing him. And then everyone will see that he's lying. Everyone will see that he was possessed by a demon and that we were right to kill him. Everyone will see that we were right and they were wrong to ever follow Jesus. And so the logic goes like this. If they can succeed in killing Jesus, then they were right to kill him. There's kind of a built-in fail-safe, too, because if Jesus does turn out to be who he says he is, then they shouldn't be able to kill him anyways, or so they think at least. We actually see Jesus' uh, response to that line of thinking in the next thing he says, though I don't think the Jews understood this. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. And so think about this. How does the Father glorify Jesus? What does he do to glorify Jesus? He raises him from the dead. That's how the Father glorifies Jesus. And so if these Jews follow the course of action that Jesus is leading them to, then the Father will raise Jesus from the dead. And so Jesus is leading them on to do something that will, in the end, backfire against them and lead to Jesus' glorification. They think that killing Jesus will discredit him, but it really glorifies him because the Father raises him from the dead. So they're playing right into Jesus' hand. It's kind of interesting to see here and in a few other places how Jesus kind of baits the rulers of the Jews into killing him. It's been said before that if you want someone to do something, The best thing to do, or the best way to do that, is to make them think that it was their idea. And that's exactly what Jesus does to the leaders of the Jews. It was really Jesus' will for them to crucify him. And he got them to do it by making them think it was their idea. But it's not like Jesus caused them to sin. We shouldn't think that. And he didn't cause them to fall into unbelief. They were already unbelievers. 
There are other members of the council, like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, who were believers, and they believed Jesus, and so they did not consent to the plan to kill him. But there were enough members of the council who were simply unbelievers. They didn't know it, but they hated God. And that's why they rejected Jesus. And Jesus uses their hardness of heart to accomplish the greatest good. He enticed them to demand his death. And then Pilate, the Roman governor, reluctantly agreed. And that's how Jesus orchestrated his plan to be crucified for the sin of the world. This crucifixion then led to his resurrection from the dead, which vindicates Jesus' claims about himself, and it opens eternal life to all who trust in him. The part of this passage that really scandalizes Jesus' opponents, pushes them over the edge and drives their murderous rage, is the part at the end about being older than Abraham. (coughs) Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews deduced from this that if Abraham had seen Jesus, then Jesus must have also seen Abraham. And they think this is just crazy. Abraham, he's been dead for almost 2,000 years at this point. And the Jews look at Jesus, this ordinary middle-aged man, and say, he can't possibly be more than 50 years old at the oldest. Actually, Jesus was closer to 30, but that's not really the point. So they ask how this is possible. And Jesus says really the most scandalous thing you could possibly say at this point. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I'll explain why that's so scandalous. It's a reference to the Old Testament name Yahweh. Yahweh, or sometimes translated in a little bit older generations, Jehovah, is the personal name for God in the Old Testament. It's used over 6,700 times in the Old Testament. It's usually translated as Lord, but it literally means I am. It emphasizes that this is the God who is. This is the one who actually exists. And one of the little nuances of it is that he exists at all times, in all places, all at once. He's not bound by time like we are. Like we experience time second by second, one moment to the next, flowing through time. But God is not bound by time like that. He's actually outside of time. He sees all things and interacts with all times all at once. It's kind of like how we might look at a timeline in a history book. We can see the entire scope of it at once, or at least the representation of it. Except God actually sees the history as it's happening, and he interacts with it all at once. And so he is present with us now, and he is present with Abraham almost 4,000 years ago, and he is present at creation, and he is present at the end of the world and every moment in between. He sees all of time and interacts with all of time all at the same time. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he meant that from his perspective, he was present with Abraham in the same moment he was arguing with these Jews. Notice he didn't say, I existed before Abraham, though that is also true. But he goes beyond that to say, before Abraham was, I am. 
And in this way, Jesus makes his claim explicitly and scandalously clear. He is God. He's the God who created the world. He is the God who appeared to Abraham and Moses. He is the God who led the Israelites through the Red Sea. He is God. He is the Lord. He is the great I am. He is Yahweh. He is the God that these unbelieving Jews pretended to worship. Jesus does not merely claim to be the Son of God. He claims to be God. And really, when we think about it, if you are the Son of God, then you are also God. Because a son always has the same nature as his father. He's always the same type of being. The son of a human is always a human. The son of a squirrel is always a squirrel. And the Son of God is God. It just so happens to be that the Son of God, for our sake, is also man because he decided in love to come down among us. This claim of Jesus scandalized his Jewish opponents to the extent that they tried to kill him right then and there. They picked up stones to throw at him in the temple, no less. They were going to murder him in the temple. But the fail-safe worked this time, as it did a few other occasions when people tried to kill Jesus. Since Jesus is God, he did not permit them at this time to kill him. Not until he disables the fail-safe. And Jesus would. At the proper time, he laid down his life of his own accord. And that's what all of this is driving toward. The Son of God, who is true God, laid down his life for you and for the world. And this really is the great point of the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is not some trivial knowledge, but it is the mystery of God. It is who God is, and it's everything that he's done. It's the great mystery of God which he has revealed to us. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And together, as one God, they work to accomplish your salvation. The Father sends his Son, and his wrath over sin, he pours out that wrath on his Son. And the Son of God came in human flesh to willingly bear that wrath for us. And in this way, God suffers the wrath of God for us, and he does it as a man for us. And then the Father and the Holy Spirit raise Jesus from the dead, and Jesus lives and reigns forevermore. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to teach this to our minds and to our hearts so that we might know it, trust it, and be saved. This is the Trinity, and this is the work of the Trinity for our salvation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.